There was four things last week that, that really break down what kind of are the core truths of fixate, okay? So it's depth, discipline, sacrifice, and sustainability. And so what we're doing is we're spending two weeks on each one of these. And today I want to give you a forewarning um, because last week we talked about depth and really what we view depth is is being rooted in scripture and in the spirit. Okay, so it's this, it's this idea that God forms us. We should be formed internally and then living externally in order for people to see the transformation of our lives. And so really what we've been talking about is depth. And this week, I want to talk about specifically with depth. And really, um, for the next few weeks, we're just talking about what the formation of the fixated is. Formation of the fixated. And for some of us, maybe we've never had the process of like all of us. I don't think anybody's going to raise your hand in here and be like, all right, I don't look at God ever. Right? And if you are that person, like good for you for the boldness. Right? right? Most of us would say we try our best to keep our eyes on God. But the practical elements of what it means to follow God consistently and have our eyes ever on him. This is the posture and belief system that we're believing is going to be kind of the DNA of our church. And what that looks like is, is habits, routines, patterns, principles lived out. Me and my wife, we're, we're huge on prayer and fasting. We f- pray and fast 24 hours every week. We're huge on Sabbath. We practice Sabbath in which we completely disengage and shut our phones off for a long time. And it's very stressful. You guys can laugh. I need some laughs today. And the reason I say I need some laughs today genuinely is because I'm talking about something that, in my opinion, is, is going to be a little difficult, so you're going to have to bear with me. But I want to talk about something called depth in the desolate. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us, we have depth when it feels good, but when it doesn't feel good, and when life is hard, and when things are happening, are we still people of depth? Are we still people of the patterns, of the behaviors, of the principles of the lifestyle of pursuing depth even when it is so hard that we do not want anything to do with God. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to challenge us, right? Depth in the desolate, and it started with this passage of scripture and really these two, and many of us are familiar with them and I'm just gonna reference them quickly. Uh, In Matthew 15, 32 through 38, as well as in Matthew 14, 13 through 20, and I actually sent this to our core team group me a long time ago. And it's the passage where Jesus feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000. And we're not going to spend a ton of time in those today. Sorry, this is just the, the, the appetizer. We're going to spend a lot of time in, a book, in the book of Ruth. But uh, what was fascinating to me is this, is in those specific instances in the NASB, it actually says that when the, when the de- people were hungry and everybody was looking around, it was a desolate place. And what's funny to me is maybe you guys didn't know this, but desolate is a Greek word, Arameos, which means a deserted land, a wasteland, barren with the inability to grow or uninhabitable. And I think a lot of the times, right, and I'm going to challenge your thinking for a second. I think a lot of the times when we look at Jesus's miracles, we neglect the setting that the miracle is done in. And we focus on the action and not necessarily the atmosphere. And what I mean by that is in this particular instance, Jesus feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000 is incredible, the activity of it, but the atmosphere of it almost paints a different picture of we focus so much on what Jesus did 
but not necessarily the setting he did it in. Why? Because there was nothing there. We just went over Aramaeus, uninhabited, a wasteland, barren. Doesn't sound like we got an in and out close by. And, and really what I'm saying today is this, is I, I want to challenge you because I believe that a lot of us, when we look at our lives, we can only see God's activity when things are perfectly lined up, when the situation and the setting is, is, is perfect for him to move. And for me, I was challenged because it came from this place of, of desolation, right? How is God having a depth in the desolation that produces something? is it's a dip, depth and rootedness in the Father that in turn sees activity take place. And I want to challenge you on that because I believe for some of us, once again, the only time we see depth in God is when life dictates seasons of depth. Circumstances are good. Everything's going great. Our families are fine. School's going great. Work's going good. Nobody's yelled at us. Notre Dame won. Green Bay didn't win this morning. Our fantasy football team won. Why am I talking so much about football? It's an idol. I'm sorry. I'm repenting. Um, but when, when, when everything dictates depth, it's easy to have depth. But when things don't dictate depth, do you have depth? You know, I, uh, I mentioned before that I was in Michigan, and when I was in Michigan, um, I, was in, uh, I started in college ministry and then worked into youth and then ultimately did generations and was a teaching pastor and was on staff at a church a little over 10 years. And while there, it was there, it was almost like the Lord, and this is the part where, I, I, like I said, we're going to go a little bit deep today, and we're going to kind of process with Micah what depth in desolation looks like because I believe that some of us, once again, Right, maybe we're in desolate seasons and we're wondering how in the heck do I have depth in God when I, God, what are you even doing? Like, what is happening? And I remember one of the first instances of this was uh, probably seven or eight years ago now. I baptized somebody, and this person actually had started coming to our church and they had hit a telephone pole going 125 as a drunk driver. And they'd broken over 40 bones in their body. The police were chasing them, were in jail for over a year. And they got out of jail. They were homeless. And as they were homeless on the side of the road, a guy from our church, he was a young guy, a guy from our church said, hey, we've got a young adults thing that I think you'd really love. Can I take you to it? So our young adults thing, don't judge me, was called Thirsty Thursdays. <laughs> because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. <laughs> But we just used to cook a big meal, invite people from the community, and just hang out. And uh, this guy's name was Sean, and Sean came. He got picked up. He was homeless, like I said, got picked up, dropped off here, and me and him actually hit it off. And I ended up picking him up for church that Sunday, and then he started coming to church. And when he started coming to church, all of a sudden, the guy who picked him up on the side of the road started coming to him at church and hired him to work in his shop. So he got a job, and, not, and, and that guy also had a house. So not only did he get a job, but we put him up in a house. And then he started coming over and hanging out. And he would do landscaping at our community houses. And he'd hang out with me. And he was an incredible guy. And then for about six months, he's got all this growth. It's incredible. And then one day, right, his buddies find out where he works. 
actually pause before I tell you this. Uh, about that time, there was a new, I don't want to get super political, but he, he was, had to be on pain meds because of all the bones he broke in his body. And there was a new medical uh, bill that had passed to where he couldn't afford his meds. So he was constantly in pain. And we were all believing and praying for him and believing and praying for him and believing and praying for him. And like I said, he's constantly in pain. Well, all at the same time as going through all of this pain, what his old friends that he ran with before he was doing dumb stuff came into the shop and held it up and robbed the place. All right? So they robbed the place. He's in pain. And in a moment of weakness, decides I'm just going to go end my life. And he does. And I remember when that was the first time I was probably 22. Um, that was the first time I had somebody very close to me who had who committed suicide that I was like very like missed a call the night before he died. Right. So I remember even as I was writing this sermon, I was processing God like what got me through the depths. And it was this part of the story is I remember going to his funeral And in going to his funeral, I actually had a picture of him baptized and all this stuff. But the family didn't really reach out to us as a church. And we go to this funeral. And as I'm there, I'm sitting with the guy who hired him and gave him a house. And as I'm sitting there, everybody at the funeral is talking negative about this guy. They're like, oh, we all knew he wouldn't really make it. He got his brothers up there. We knew he wouldn't amount to anything. We knew he wasn't. We always knew he made dumb decisions it's sad, but we're, we enjoyed the time we had with him. And they said, hey, we're just, we know, and it was a small group, very small, maybe 30 people. And they said, hey, we, we're going to open the mic up if anybody wants to speak. And I'm very, I'm like angry right now because the Sean they're describing is not the Sean I knew. And so I remember they opened the mic and I'm just like, I'm doing it. And I walk up and I look at all his family and I said, the Sean you know is not the Sean I know. The Sean I know was the most helpful, most loving. The Sean I know I gave a Bible to and was doing Bible studies with. The Sean I know was somebody who valued you guys. And I like tried to be like, and you don't value him, obviously. Right, the Sean I know was not the Sean that's being described today. The Sean I know is one that when he met Jesus was a completely different person. And you can choose to remember the Sean that you know, but I want to challenge you to remember the Sean I knew. And it was wild because I remember I got done speaking and the whole family like comes up to me and is like, we did not thank you so much. And it's almost like this this perspective shift of we were looking through one lens and now we're being forced to look through another. And that's, that's what I want to challenge you in today because that wasn't just the first time I went through something difficult at that church. We, I have, I, it's, it's wild. One of, my, one of my best friends actually died of an overdose as well. Very close friend. Uh, I can tell you so many stories. I had one, one student who was in our, in our uh, high school ministry that was, was killed in a drive-by. And I had to call all his buddies in the church, tell them, hey. Right. And I'm not telling you this to get you to a place of like emotional openness. I'm telling you this from a place of when we talk about depth today, there will be times in your life where you are questioning the very reality of if you even need it. And maybe some of us have walked through seasons where we've doubted the goodness of God and we've doubted if he has a plan and we've doubted and we've cast. And I just want to say this to you. 
When there is depth in the Lord, there's something different taking place. It's not that we know everything's going to work out perfect. It's that we know that if we're left to ourselves, we're not going to work out well. And I can tell you story after story in my life of, of insane loss. I mean, I had another one where I had, I've had suicide notes addressed to me. I've had crazy stuff happen. And it's almost like God was setting the table for Micah. I want you to be able to speak from a, pain, from a place of pain, but also from a place of perspective within it. But the only way you get to perspective is when you are so rooted in depths of God that there's nothing that's going to uproot it. You're going to stay faithful. You're going to stay consistent. You're going to stay rooted. You're going to stay focused. You're going to stay committed. You're going to keep one step in front of the other. And the steps may be slow. And they may hurt. And they may be the last thing we want to do. But God left to myself. I would be nothing. So what I want to do is I want to focus today on a passage of scripture that many of us have maybe heard before, but I'm going to challenge us within this, this passage of scripture because I think maybe some of us have never heard it in the context of what we're going to talk about with it today. And it's in Ruth, and we're going to start reading actually right in the front and jump around throughout the chapter, and you can kind of follow along on the screens. Ruth 1, 1 through verse 5, it says this. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab. All right, pause. Can we leave that up there? Is it up there? I can't see. Okay, great. What you need to understand is this, okay? Ruth is the setting that happens right after Judges. Judges is an incredible book of God essentially like trying to help like keep his people on track, but his people keep falling away. So he'd raise up a deliverer, he'd deliver them, and then they'd fall back into their sin. He'd raise up a deliverer, fall back. Raise up a deliverer, fall back. Raise up, and it's just like this toxic cycle of well over 200 years that takes place of people raising up, falling back, raising up, falling back. So Ruth, what we can actually ascertain is this, is whenever there was a famine in the promised land, right, those things, even it sounds weird to say, like there's a famine in Judah, that's the promised land. What, can, what we can ascertain is that there's most likely wickedness and disobedience happening. But what's wild about this is actually it says that they sojourn in the land of Moab. Now, many of you guys maybe aren't this deep on it, and don't worry, that's why I'm here. Moab is a very, like, for lack of a better term, pretty terrible place for Israelites. What I mean by that is you can actually look in Judges, and some of those redeemers that were raised up to deliver the people were actually people who were Moabites that were oppressing, killing, and slaughtering people, okay? So these people are like, hey, we're going to leave the promised land to go to the land of Moab. Many of you guys maybe even don't know this, but the land of Moab, the actual origination of the people of Moab are from Abraham and Lot, Lot, when he had incest with his daughters, right? How many of you guys know? Sounds like a pleasant place to go. Let me, chat, let me take it a step further. When you look at the Moabites and the Ammonites, both of those people were people from Moab and Ammon. They were both children of incest, and they were both tribes that existed in the promised land that were not removed when the children of Israel came in. 
Think about this, right? They're products of sin and sin that wasn't removed. And ultimately, they become a thorn in the side of God's chosen people. That was like a whole sermon in one verse, and we're going to keep going. It says this, verse 2. The name of the man was Elamiliac, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chiliam. And they were of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered in the land of Moab and remained there. Verse 3. Then Elamiliac, Naomi's husband, died and, was le- and left him with two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Now, if you know anything about studying Numbers and Deuteronomy, the number one thing that Moses says is do not intermarry. Do not. What are we doing right now? We're intermarrying. What do you think is going to happen? Probably not anything good. Let's keep reading. It says this. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. You guys remember what I was talking about with the Moabites? People of incest, people of oppression. Ruth's a Moabite. Maybe some of us never even knew that because Ruth is such like a, like, dang, that's such a woman of Scripture. That's incredible. Right? She is like Deborah. We have a Deborah in the second row. I'm looking right at her. She was mad, too, because our first sermon series ever here was kind of her story, and uh, she gave me a lot of crap, so we're all going to look at you another five seconds. <laughs> so, so Ruth is a Moabite. Let's, let's unpack that. Because, man, a lot of us are like, yes, God, like, you know, raise up the Ruths, God. And it's like, what? It's like, I've heard people like, let's all be like Ruth. And you're like, eh. Products of incest and oppressive to the children of Israel. Yeah, God, let's cast that out. Let's cast that out right now, quickly. Right now, please. So let's keep reading. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malone and Chilion also died, and the women were bereft after bereft of her two children and her husband. So what you have to realize is this. Ruth is not actually a story of Ruth. It's a story of Naomi. And I'm going to actually take it a step further, because we're going to, and I'm going to reinforce that uh, at the end. But Ruth is not a story of Ruth. It's a story of Naomi. And not only that, we actually start to see what's going on within the context and contour of their lives, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to jump down to Ruth 1, 15 through verse 22. But before we do, I'm going to say this, right? Is in that first passage, it says they left Judah during famine and went to, went to Moab. Now, they left because it was uncomfortable and inconvenient. They didn't have food. And they returned and they didn't have their husbands or their sons. So think about this. The easiest way to go from bad to worse is to leave a place that God told you you should be in and go to a place that you think will be more comfortable. This passage reinforces it. What we're looking at is, do you think Naomi would have went with her husband to Moab to get food if she'd have known she was coming back without a husband and sons? But she wanted food. Do you think she would have done it in hindsight being 2020? Do you think she would have packed up everything and left knowing that she wouldn't just be returning without sons? She'd just be returning with a Moabite. 
And I think some of us, the number one thing that attacks spiritual maturity is that we will not be rooted and we will seek comfort and almost a consumeristic view of following Jesus rather than, God, I want the roots deep. God, I need depth. God, I need to be able to to stand when it feels like life is a famine and trust that you'll be my provider. And in some cases, ask ourselves the question, this, this is a whole nother statement, right? Is if you're in a famine, ask God the question, is there something I'm doing that's causing the famine? Because, man, I I know a lot of people who we never ask God the question, the tough stuff of, God, am I the one producing the things that are happening to me? Speak. Your servant's listening. Let's keep reading. Hold on, though. Oh, man, this is another good one. We're going for, just so you know, we, we only go for like four hours here. Um. Name meanings and changes in this. We're going to actually um, jump ahead. And b- but before we do, I want you to understand this. Ameliac's name means my God is my king. So what you need to understand is typically when the Bible associates specific names, there's specific things it's trying to communicate. So we've got Ameliac means my God is my king. Naomi means pleasantness. And the husband that died with Ruth, Malone, his name means finished, complete, and perfect. So let's put these names together, right? God is king, pleasantness, and finished, complete, and perfect. What happens when none of those things are true? Naomi changes her name. You know what he cha- she changes her name to? Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitterness. Okay, so let me, let me challenge you on your depth right now, okay? Because if you don't have depth, you'll go through seasons. See, when you have depth in God it's, and everything's great, it's awesome. But when you have depth and you have to look and believe that my God is my king, even though it doesn't feel like it, you got to believe that God is pleasant and he sees this man when it doesn't feel like it. You got to believe that he's the finisher, right? And it's complete and it's perfect when it doesn't feel like it. The challenge is going to be if you're going to believe those things or you're going to change your name. And for a lot of us, I feel like, right, we get in situations and seasons where God's like, hey, I'm pleasant and I'm perfect and I'm your king. And we look at him and go, but my circumstances are changing my name. And the things I'm walking through are changing how I see things. And the things that I'm going through are changing who I am. And what's sad today is I think plenty of us know bitter people. And what's fascinating is it's just not a, a, a thing that the church deals with. It's a thing that all of us deal with. I really believe that the number one thing that you should fight against in your life is if you're going to be a bitter person. Because there's going to be things that really try to redefine who you are. Are you going to believe in the good king? Are you going to believe in the pleasantness? Are you going to believe in the finisher and the perfecter? Are you going to get bitter when it gets tough? Ruth 1, 15 to 22. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Like, listen to this, right? Like, no offense, if I have a kid 
And that kid comes over or introduces me to like their, their significant other when I'm like 60, right? I'm 30 now. Some of you guys thought I was like 19. It's okay. That's why I grow the beard out. But listen, like Ruth, literally Naomi's looking at Ruth as a Moabite and she's literally saying like, you can return to your land and your gods. It's like, dang, don't you think that should have been a red flag there? Like... Like, hey, let's get married to a girl who's got completely different gods. Let's go to Moab. Anyway, let's keep going. It says this, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, man, this is powerful. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. What a speech. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi returned with Ruth, the Mobitus, her daughter-in-law, returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The question for you today is are you going to be Ruth or are you going to be Naomi? And the funny thing is, is I think a lot of us are like, oh, you know, obviously I'll be Ruth. But let's actually continue reading your story. Because when you break down what she's doing, we're actually going to, I'm going to paraphrase quickly chapters 2 and 3. Ruth, at the beginning of the barley harvest, because they're so generous, have no place to live. She just determines every day I'm going to show up at a field and whatever scraps are left, I'm going to pick them up for the food for me and my mother-in-law. So every day for months, she just picks up food and she's just scraping to get by. But she's being faithful. She's being constant. She's staying committed and she's keeping her word true. And then it says this, she meets a man by the name of Boaz, who Boaz is is a landowner. Not only is he a landowner, but he's a wealthy landowner. And not only is he a wealthy landowner, he's the redeemer. So if something were to happen to the family, he would actually step into the place. And what you see is, is there's an interaction where Boaz then determines, I want to marry Ruth. And he marries her. And it says this in Ruth 4, 13 through verse 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, to Naomi, why are they talking to Naomi about Ruth's kid? It's funny because you're going to see this is what I'm talking about. Ruth is not a story about Ruth. It's a story about Naomi. It says this, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer a life of life and a sustainer of your old age for your, and for your daughter-in-law who loves you. And is better to you than seven sons. For she has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Once again, where's Ruth? All these ladies are talking to Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. She's better than seven. But man, you've got, you've got a redeemer. And now you can be a nurse and you can raise him. The neighbor woman gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. What? Like... I'm sorry, no, a son was not born to Naomi right now. This is like Ruth's probably getting fired up. So they named him Obed, who's the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. What does this story mean to us within depth of desolation, right? And I love the fact that this is so kind of full um, of imagery. See, Ruth, in my opinion, is not a story of God's provision. It's a God's story of Yeshua finding a Moabite. And what's funny to me is in the Old Testament, it's almost like we have God's chosen people and then we have these things that are sprinkled in where God's almost foreshadowing that he's going to be a God who loves, plans, and calls all people to himself. Moabites, she was raised with different gods, but she becomes the great-grandmother of David. So that's the first element of imagery in the story, but the second one, is the question of this. When circumstances dictate, are we going to be a people of the desolation of Naomi or the faithfulness of Ruth? What I mean by that is Ruth wasn't raised following the God of Jacob. Ruth wasn't raised in Judah or the promised land within the context of serving and being in the temple. She wasn't raised with these names and imagery and all the, She wasn't raised that way. But there was something about faithfulness and consistency and commitment that dictated a different course for her life. But Naomi was raised with all the things. She knew all the stuff. But when desolation happened, what we see is she didn't have depth. Or Ruth did. It's funny because her name was Mara, and, it, it's, and you can actually read in Ruth 2 and 3, she literally is telling people, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. But then when the circumstances changes, do you notice what they're calling her again? Naomi. What's sad to me is that a lot of us, we follow God when the circumstances dictate, but when the circumstances don't, it's very easy to start falling away and falling back on our own need to control, need to get through, need to make things happen. But then when things get good again, it's easy to kind of come back around. Depth in the desolation is, God, I will sustainably walk with you in the depths of your Holy Spirit with the disciplines of a life rooted in your scripture and your Holy Spirit, and I will not falter. I'll stay true. So what I want to do is I just want to give us a couple things for us to think about, right? These parting thoughts. Don't run to where you think you will be more comfortable, Moab. Don't let your circumstances dictate your identity, pleasant to bitter. Be faithful to what's been entrusted and don't leave what Ruth was to Naomi. Trust that your habits will bring forth strength that keeps you going. I want to talk about something for a second because many of you guys, we're going to get so nitty gritty here and I promise I'm, I'm, I'm landing, okay? So she's in the fields every day of the barley harvest, and it says she meets Boaz. Do you remember what her first husband's name meant? Right, let's go back. I'm, I'm just going to make sure you remember. This is going to be a refresher. The first name of her husband is finished, complete, and perfect. You know what Boaz's name means? Strength. Think about this. Her first husband, 
finished, complete, and perfect. Her second husband is strength. Which one is more important? I'm not saying that like rhetorically or like I have all the answers. But this point, trust that your habits will bring forth strength to keep going. See, a lot of us, we have this idea of God as perfect, as bringing it all together, and not a God of strength to endure. Her number one process right in the beginning was perfect and good. But her second husband that produced the heir, that produced David, was strength. And I pray today that we are not people who just when it's perfect and it feels good and everything's awesome, we're following God. But we're a people who we look at God and say, God, I actually follow you for the strength that you bring my soul. And that is why I will follow you. And that's why I'll always follow you. Trust that your habits will bring forth strength to keep going. And the last thing is this. Trust you have a compassionate friend. You know what Ruth's name means? I was holding out on this one. Compassionate friend. See, the, the imagery of this entire story, I could spend a lot more time on it, but I know some of us have lunch plans or brunch plans or both. But what's fascinating to me about this story is that we have a choice when it's difficult if we're going to be Ruth or we're going to be Naomi. And today, some of us maybe are feeling that choice. Life hasn't been what we thought. We've been going through things we didn't think we'd go through. There's uncertainty. There's uneasiness. There's things that we never thought we would be facing. And today, the question is this. Are you Ruth or are you Naomi? Because death in the desolate is going to force you to make a choice. Will you turn to the bitterness that Naomi turned to? Or will you turn to the pleasant friend, to the faithful and to the consistent, to the one who said, I'll stay and I'll always stay. That's the challenge today. And wherever you are in your desolation, because there will be times when you feel it, may you be challenged to be Ruth. Let's all stand to our feet. With every head bowed and every eye closed, Something we do here every week is I kind of synopsize the sermon as a prayer that I pray over everybody. So if you're completely comfortable, like I said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, let's kind of get in a place of, re- of receptivity. If you'd like to kind of receive this sermon into your spirit and you're com- comfortable, if you'd open your hands as I read this over us. Jesus, today we come before you and ask for renewed perspective on desolate seasons. Father, would you give us depth to withstand what feels like fighting for breath with no life jacket as the waves churn around us. May we be a place where we trust that pursuing you holds our heads above the water, our hearts above the chaos, 
and our spirits above the emptiness. Father, would you keep us running towards you, not the comfort of this world. Would you remind us of our identity as children when our circumstances seek to redefine it? God, we will be faithful, and we choose today to stay. To stay when it's hard, to stay when we're offended, to stay when we want to retreat. Father, may your spirit be the Ruth when all we feel like is Naomi. We will be faithful in the habits of pursuing you in your word and in your spirit, knowing when we do, you will provide the strength to keep going. Remind us you are a compassionate friend, a safe place, a loving father, and an ever-present help in times of trouble. May we remind ourselves today that what is out of our control is never out of your control. 